It's the 27th of August, and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamer Baik, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 26th episode. Today's podcast is about consumer behavior through this pandemic, both in the developed and emerging markets. The unprecedented lockdown measures and various policy responses have led to many developments and unintended consequences worldwide. Consumer trends have accelerated and some new trends have emerged. You can see some of that reflected in equity market performance over the past six months with travel, tourism, energy, and transportation sectors selling off, while e-commerce, cloud computing, communications, medicine and medical supplies, and of course, retail delivery doing very well. To get a better sense of how differently people are living, buying, and thinking, and how companies are adjusting to those changes, we have with us today Sonia Gupta, Managing Director, Growth and Innovation, Accenture Growth Markets. In her role as Managing Director, Sonia works closely with the C-suite and boards of companies to frame, design, and deliver strategic transformation and innovation projects. Sonia specializes in the areas of business model innovation, corporate strategy, and leadership. She has been with Accenture since 2009, prior to which she held various roles in IBM Global Business Services and PricewaterhouseCoopers. Sonia, welcome to Kopi Time. Thanks, Tabor. Delighted to be here and look forward to a great conversation. I'm looking forward to this as well. Uh, Let's start with some very basic things. Tell us about Accenture. And also, although I have already read your job description, please give us a sense of what you do there. Super. Thanks, Temur. So Accenture is a leading global professional services company, and we provide a range of services from strategy and consulting, interactive through to technology and operations. We have 513,000 people serving our clients across 120 countries. But perhaps three fun facts that most people don't know about us. The first, we have been awarded for the fifth consecutive year as the world's largest digital agency. Most people don't know this about us. We have about $10 billion of our revenue in, uh, on the digital agency side. Second fun fact, we have more than 7,400 patents and patent spending in our name uh, in a range of things from analytics through to quantum computing. And the third is we have over 100 innovation centers across the globe that span, you know, everything from cyber fusion and security through to design uh, and so on. And then the second part of your question, a little bit about me. So I'm Sonia Gupta. I'm Managing Director for Growth and Innovation at Accenture, which means I have the exciting privilege of working with uh, our clients and leadership teams to help them reimagine and navigate this world full of uncertainty and use innovation as a way to drive growth. That is fantastic. And I'm really glad you got to say a few things about Accenture because the scale of the company is just extraordinary. And I don't think most people actually appreciate how large you are, both in the regular space and the digital space. Um, So, yeah, you guys have been on top of this whole pandemic and how that's affecting our day to day behavior. And you're also advising companies to strategize around that. And I've been reading about all these uh, large scale multi country surveys. Uh, you and your colleagues have done. So perhaps we will begin by talking about some of these surveys and their findings. So take your time and explain to us in some degree of detail about how consumers' preferences and habits are being disrupted or even reinforced by this pandemic. Indeed, Temur. Uh, I think what I find most exciting about the study that I'm going to share with you is 
all of us, both both of us in this room, but also people who are listening to this, we're all consumers first. And there is always something in the conversation we're about to have that you can engage with. So let me start with what the study was about. We studied roughly 8,800 consumers in eight waves every two weeks from the 19th of March to through the last uh, session, which ended in July, across 23 markets. We changed some of the markets as we went through just to make sure we were spanning, uh, you know, North America, Europe, Latin America, and most of Asia. And these countries included Australia, Brazil, Canada, through to Japan, India, Indonesia, all the way through to the UK and the US. What we set out to study and answer were really questions in five key areas. The first was, who is this new consumer? And what are we seeing in terms of four different areas? I think the first is, what are people buying and how are they buying, given their mindsets, mindsets and purchasing attitudes on the back of what COVID has triggered? The second is, how are they living? What's happening to the family as a unit? Uh, how are they spending time at home and in other places? The next one is really about trust in institutions, government, public and private sector, as well as the social sector. And the very last was really around new ways of working that we're seeing. What I'll do is I'll walk through each of these in turn. And as we go through, would love to hear, you know, your reactions on what you find surprising and, you know, what we'd like to share more about. Sure, sure. Sounds good. Works? Okay. So let me talk a little bit about the future consumer. When we started the study, you can imagine we almost saw three different patterns, right? The first was really the consumer in crisis. So when the when COVID broke across markets, and uh, if you recall, we studied 23 different markets, some of them were in advancing stages, some are stabilizing. And uh, as we see the different phases come in, you obviously see different reactions. But the first was really a consumer in crisis. The second was then the adjusting consumer. Right, that was adapting, making making up their minds about the sort of choices they want to make. And now we're, what we're focused on, and I think the purpose of today's conversation as well, is to really start to make sense of what are some lasting behaviors there are. Because some of them were reactions right, to product and services being made available in certain ways, but it was also about how you were thinking about the pandemic, versus now we're able to see a few patterns that tell us what's likely to be here for the longer term, as expressed by both consumers, but also the purchasing categories and the movements. So that's really a, a little bit about the future consumer. So let me talk to you about some of the consumer types that we're seeing emerge. At the simplest level, um, if you think about consumers in terms of time and money, we saw a set of consumers that were financially pressed and squeezed, but they had the time. And as you work through a two by two of time and money, of consumers that either have both time and money and have been largely unchanged, uh, or uh, their, you know, their both their time and money environments have not changed. You see certain mindsets and behaviors versus others that have been, uh, you know, adversely impacted both in terms of time and money, right? Um, so let me call out a few terms for some of these different segments and the types of things that are occupying their mind. The first is really a category of consumers that we're calling on the edge. They're 20% of the consumer base. They're extremely worried about health, finances, and going out in public. And they are being very conscious about how they're spending money. They're looking at new sources of income, and they're the least comfortable visiting places in the public places in the next six months. You have another category then that we're calling the tentative returner. 
And the way I would express their, you know, a quote that kind of captures this consumer is, hopefully everyone will re-enter and reopen the community slowly and responsibly. They're cautiously integrating back into society and trying to create normal routines. They too avoid non-trusted or non-essential spaces. I will then draw your attention to a couple of other segments at, on the other side of the spectrum. You have 28% of the people who are stubbornly seeking normal. They're harking after return to the way things were. And there's a sense of restlessness about it is about time for us to be able to go out. Um, and then you see the YOLO segment, which is they're living for the moment to make up for what was lost. So when you look at some of the behaviors around, you know, the uh, the Louis Vuitton shop in Guangzhou, which had the highest record spending in one day versus what they had over six months, it was really the YOLO consumer that was neither affected both in terms of time and money and was looking to make up loss for lost time. This is really interesting, Sonia. I just want to add one thing because we have been doing some work uh, on this income angle that you started this discussion with. Um, we have lots of people with deposits and uh, DBS. And last week, our team published a set of findings looking at 1.2 million uh, customers' uh, salary accounts in which we found, not that different from your finding, about 300,000 workers, so about a third of that uh, people or 25% of the people we looked at who have seen substantial decline in their salaries uh, between uh, the post-COVID uh, time and pre-COVID times. And also we saw that in the middle age, so the 35 to 44 uh, age segment are the people who have seen the most decline in their salaries. Um, and the second point that you pointed out, and, and I think China, because it's sort of ahead of the curve for everybody else, we have better insight, uh, this notion of a big pickup in sales as soon as lockdown eased. But Sonia, we have also seen that spurt dissipate pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, so long lines day one, day two, but then by the time day 20 comes, it just goes back. It's not really going back to the pre-pandemic levels. It's somewhere in between. Absolutely. And, you know, if I could just pick up on that thread, Temur, you know, persisting financial fears are leading consumers to reprioritize their basic needs. And what we're finding is, especially if you look to contrast March versus July, and we look at the types of themes that were occupying consumer minds from personal health, health of friends and family, food and medicine security. The one aspect that's had the biggest change in terms of mind space is financial security. We're seeing a 38 percentage points uh, you know, difference between how people were using, viewing financial security as a current priority in March versus in the next three to six month kind of outlook going forward from July. So very real concerns, and this is across advancing and stabilizing markets, where we're seeing consumers taking a very uh, somber look at their own spending, being quite thoughtful about what's essential versus non-essential. Right, and also, you know, the pendulum sort of swings between stabilizing and deteriorating, because in some cases we have seen resurgence of the virus. So you may have been getting a bit optimistic when the first phase of uh, the pandemic came to an end, uh, you were getting happy and then the virus came back up, lockdowns came back on, and that probably is as damaging, if not more damaging than the first round of uh, downward revision of people's expectations and confidence. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's really interesting, as people think about essential versus non-essential spend, and you think about what gives people comfort about going out to busy spaces, even in stabilizing markets. And I'll give you this 
you know, range, right? From bars, clubs, sporting events, public transport, all the way through to, you know, a friend or relative's house through to grocery or pharmacy, you can see the level of discomfort in anything that's, you know, large, close proximity of people in a small space, there's enormous discomfort. So anything from a uh, public transport, sporting event, or bar or club rated upwards of 50, uh, 50% of the people saying we're very uncomfortable over the next six months and we're going to be quite uh, cautious, right? Uh, versus as you move further down in terms of the essentials, you know, grocery, pharmacy, drive-ins, or being at a friend or relative's home or your own home, those were obviously rated actually the highest in terms of comfort of, uh, you know, visiting and spending time. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Sonia, but in my personal behavior, I have reflected exactly that thing, that the moment the lockdowns ease, you know, I visited my sister's place, we had friends over, but as far as, you know, going to bars and clubs, well, they're not particularly open in a great yeah. anyway, uh, but our events, public events, you know, out of questions for the time being. And, you know, Tenmut, what was interesting was we asked a very pointed question around the initiatives, you know, f establishments and others are taking versus what actually is material in a consumer's mind that makes them comfortable about visiting a space. And there were some very important, I think, messages. It may seem like a blinding glimpse of the obvious in retrospect, but, you know, things like staggered hours, uh, you know, limiting people, etc., was one thing. But visual markers, you know, people wearing masks, whether you're doing a temperature check, the optics of how, uh, you know, an F&B establishment lays out seats, you know, these were actually really important to consumers. And, you know, there was very strong word of mouth when people went in and, and saw the hygiene levels or the proactive nature in which F&B establishments were interacting that allowed them to give them the comfort. Do you have any insights into whether people are impressed or comforted by the responses at the F&B level versus schools versus uh, place of work? I mean, are people looking at these things differently? So interesting, Tamar. I'll break up your question into two parts. Yeah, The first, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a, uh, the response by establishments, uh, which I think is really quite clever. So Uluma, uh, which means, uh, would you like to eat in China, as you know, Eluma and Meituan, the two big food delivery companies in China, have actually created reassurance slips so when I deliver food at home, you get a slip that actually gives you a certification of who packed your food, who cooked it, what were the temperature checks, and they put in sensors. So they're actually monitoring the temperature of the workers that are actually uh, cooking your food, packing it, and delivering it at home, right? So that kind of reassurance guarantee uh, that F&B establishments are proactively taking on board is really helpful, right? The second kind of response that we're seeing um, uh, which I again, I think uh, consumers are appreciative of is there's a company called uh, Presto uh, that's actually created a an app which allowed a range of F&B establishments overnight to pretty much move from physical menus to an all on your phone mechanism to order while you're in uh, in the restaurant, but all the way through to payment. Right. So. They didn't need to create it. I mean, I love human ingenuity at such times and really the opportunities that people are taking. So that's on the FNB side. If I then answer your question in terms of trust in institutions and what's happened there, very mixed, Daimur. And on the most, for the most part, uh, you know, 
all organizations have not fared very well. So if I go industry by industry, banking, if I go to employees uh, responding in terms of how their employers have done so, uh, roughly in the 50% range, just in terms of dissatisfaction, and the trend and pattern continues. And they were for a range of different reasons. So for the first, if I go one by one, uh, when people were ordering groceries, if you remember the height of the lockdown in many markets, many promises were made, but but very few of them were kept in terms of deliveries on time. Like people were staying up at midnight, you know, to click away, you know, to try and load their uh, shopping carts, right? So a lot of broken promises there, and uh, they were very unhappy. The second, uh, and we should spend some time on this later in the conversation, perhaps, is just a very strong rise in consumer opinion about organizations and governments doing the right thing. Uh, and not because you're being monitored or policed, but you know, in times of crisis, they expect a whole lot more. And the way you've conducted yourself in the last you know, four, four to six months has either been very beneficial to your brand or has been very damaging, right? So does that help? So you asked about employers, yeah. mm -hmm, yeah. F&B establishments. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the um, uh, various things that you talk about in terms of, you know, clever companies trying to convince people that, you know, their uh, practice of hygiene it can be established by looking at all these quantitative markers about how they uh, check the food and how uh, safe the food is. Uh, very smart. Um, how lasting are these? Uh, so we can, you know, sort of look at the last three, four months of data and say, all right, a lot of things have changed dramatically. We are spending more time at home. We are consuming more e-commerce. Uh, but what's your sense of the lasting nature of these things? Which changes are going to be profound and lasting? And which changes do you think are going to be transitory? Super question, Tamar. And I'm going to call these out in turn. Yeah? So let me talk about the first one, which is really staying in is the new going out. Right. So home at the heart of everything. It is real. It's an opportunity that's been trending upwards. If you look at all of the social listening that we do around people getting creative about doing more and more at home, both from a entertainment relationship connection perspective, but also in terms of working from home, uh, the home at the heart of is absolutely a lasting behavior. And let me call out a couple of responses by companies as well and the kinds of opportunities it has presented, right? So if you look at uh, Brazil, General Mills has a brand called Yoki, which actually created a whole set you know, of free kits containing popular foods in Sao Paulo to help people celebrate the festas juninas, right? So it's a big festival for them. Uh, under normal circumstances, obviously, it would look very different. But what General Mills did was they created a party calculator where you could go in and say, how many people were you looking to host at home? What were the different uh, you know, treats you needed, as well as fun things like how could you celebrate, right? So it was an all-in kit. Right. So you know, this is one, one sort of example. I think the other example, and I don't know, Temur, whether you tried cutting your hair at home, but you know, there is this whole rise of going pro at home. So there were a range of services, you know, you looked at specialists to go and do. Now, here's where your important question about lasting behaviors comes in, right? Some of these you did out of necessity. Cutting hair, bad, you know, was a bad experience right, for most of us. That's so it's not. <laughs> so that's not something that's a lasting behavior. Uh, but for some of the other things, you know, I think we're seeing the rise of hobbyists, uh, this whole uh, creation with your hands, art, 
you know, different things that people would have liked to do in their spare time that, you know, since they're spending more time at home, they're able to kind of do this as a collective. Okay. Um, but, uh, for example, this notion that, you know, we are fairly comfortable working out of home uh, and that, you know, we are building, as you, uh, to paraphrase you, that, you know, home at the heart of everything. Isn't this variable across one's family structure and income level? If you are poor, I don't think working out of home is that comfortable because, you know, you probably don't have a home office. And if you are single or you're a family with no kids, is hanging out at home as much fun and rewarding as it is for me or you, for example, who have young kids and we're appreciating the fact that we can spend more time with our kids? Great question, Tamar. And, you know, you're right. It is nuanced. But let me give you the headlines first and then talk about some of the nuances you've raised, which really require a lot of corporate attention. So the thing that we're seeing is the demand to work from home in the future continues to rise. You know, 73% of the people actually enjoy the experience. And 35% of all employees plan to work from home at least once a week in the future, with one in five planning to work from home more than three times a week. Okay, so a very strong trend, and I, I will give you a couple of examples, right? So from the employee end, yes, there are many things that aren't perfect, and we'll talk about them in turn. From a corporate perspective, a lot of clients that we have worked with that had very strong uh, in-office cultures have now recognized the upside of, you know, collaborative behaviors and virtual working while recognizing that there are obviously some conditions under which it's not as optimal. For example, when you're looking to, you know, build completely new business, right, you're looking to forge and acquire customers for the first time. Trying to build trust remotely is obviously hard. Trying to get new distributed teams to collaborate uh, when they've never interacted or worked before and you don't have a remote working muscle is obviously taking time. But that said, the, the fact that you're not commuting anymore, the fact that, you know, you know, there are some positives both on the employee side and on the corporate side, which frankly, they had not acknowledged before. And I'm talking about, you know, some of the organizations that we work with, which did not have as strong a digital muscle and remote working muscle. On the some of the nuances you raised out, the first is it is very intense, Temur. And, you know, we've got a number of quotes across countries. And it's exactly the kind of, uh, you know, emotion that you were referring to where, uh, it is uncomfortable, you know, you, you uh, feel locked in, um, you know, and you don't feel as productive. There are a lot of mental health issues as well, because you lack the social engagement and the downtime. Uh, you feel like you're always on. And these are very real, uh, you know, sort of conversations we're also having at Accenture, as, as is true for a lot of our clients who are proactively moving on the mental wellness front and making some very specific initiatives to make sure that, you know, uh, people disengage at the right time. They are able to uh, tap into hotlines to actually talk about how they're feeling and to proactively equip both leaders and employees uh, with channels to be able to take action. Right. Now, Sonia, the reason I, I asked you this is because some of your surveys have very striking results. So there was this one survey, uh, I think it was done by the Consumer Research Group at Accenture, uh, and you guys surveyed people in March, then again in May. And in both times, very large number of people, like two thirds of the people said that they had the right tools to be able to work from home. 
But that doesn't mean that they all said that they were productive from home. Only mm. half of them said, you know, they're productive, more productive at home than in the office. So, yes, uh, I think we've been surprised that companies that used to sort of resist people working from home, they, it turns out the technology works and people do have the tools to work from home. But that doesn't mean that they want to stay at home all the time and they do, they're going to be you know, productive equally or more by staying at home. So I think that when you talk about uh, earlier, talked about earlier that people want to go back to work, but at the same time, they probably have seen the light that they don't have to go back to work five days a week. Maybe a hybrid future lies ahead where we are comfortable working out of home and happy to go to the office time to time. And Daimur, it's also read to a cool new catchphrase. It's called sweat working. So unlike networking, this is where you kind of regroup with your friends and colleagues at work and you actually do uh, a workout, right? So you're doing chair yoga or whatever else, but, you know, it's the equivalent of catching a coffee in the pantry, but you just can't do it. So, you know, what's the next best thing while staying healthy? Sure. I've been doing virtual lunches with my team. So we get uh, people in Hong Kong, Bangalore and Singapore to get together at the same time. Unfortunately, because of the time difference, the India team has to have breakfast while we have. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, a, a workout together might be a good idea for my Singapore team. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, Sonia, a couple of other things. Um, before this pandemic hit us, we felt that, you know, around the world, and it's from our perspective in DBS, and I know Accenture is also very well involved with this, is that we felt that the tide had turned and the world was becoming more and more conscious about the perils of climate change and uh, moving on with, you know, initiatives to decarbonize our world. Do you feel, and, and looking at your survey results, that people have sort of given up on this issue for the time being? They're so worried about livelihood and physical health that climate change can wait? Or people have actually become re-energized and sort of appreciate how interconnected and fragile and vulnerable we are that they have not forsaken climate change as an imperative? So, Tamar, thank you for raising this. And I was hoping to, you know, one of the lasting behaviors that, you know, we're starting to see some fairly strong evidence of is trust is being given carefully to institutions that are purpose driven. Mm. The second thing that I will call out is living for local. So this increase of purchases of local brands versus global brands and the rise of the authenticity economy. Right. So it is about uh, yeah, it is really about, you know, saving the neighborhood store. We're seeing a combination of consumer activism around it, but also governments recognizing that as they're digitizing businesses, it's very important to create the right kind of impetus to allow the local organizations to compete uh, and actually creating the digital tools that allow them. Uh, and I'll give you an example, right? In Singapore, you had Facebook Live auctions for Take a Mall, right? So you had a number of wholesale fresh foods organizations that, just really struggled right through this period versus others that already had digital platforms. And there was also the government providing this uh, push along with consumer activation about saving our, um, you know, wet markets. Correct. Right. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, you know, we we're in lots of conversations around being a responsible business, both as Accenture, but also all the clients we work with. And what we're finding is some really serious reflection by the leadership with the leadership teams we're working with and on a number of fronts. So I want to define, you know, some of the sustainability uh, sort of label that we put uh, with with a little more sort of detail, uh, adding a little more detail, if I might. Right. So the first is 
what I will call origin, track and trace, authenticity, right? So knowing where you're sourcing from, are you sourcing locally? Uh, and Amazon actually created an entire uh, segment, a label, which actually told you, you know, any product that you're buying, which state it's actually from, right? And this is for America, but we're seeing very similar demands globally by consumers actually saying, tell me where this product is from, because I want to support my local uh, uh, entrepreneurs, right? The second thing is really what you alluded to, which is how green is your supply chain? Right. So the carbon footprint, you know, how are you actually going about it in addition to your product portfolio? So the oil and gas companies, the rise of renewables and so on. So it's not just one thing. Right. It's a number of different elements or pillars of that whole sustainability chain that consumers are asking for more from um, sort of the organizations they interact with. Very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I want to talk about the other side of the coin, which is how uh, companies are reacting and adapting. But before that, I want to touch on two issues. Uh, one is the role of the government. This has, crisis has sort of reinforced uh, government's uh, role in our lives like, you know, it hasn't been in a very, very long time. Um, but when you survey consumers across markets, um, are, are people trusting governments the same? So I, we know that in China, uh, regardless of what the you know rest of the world sort of you know sees in the media, the trust levels are high, and as a result, the government of China has managed to implement fairly intrusive uh, tracking measures and uh, you know facial recognition software to see if their body temperature is high or not. Uh, that sort of stuff has gone very well uh, with respect to implementation, but surely that is not the case across everywhere. Yes, and spot on them. I think a lot of that was reflected when the pandemic broke, exactly as you said, as they were looking to put in place tracking mechanisms. Uh, the trust in government came out loud and clear because a lot of them tried to put in place apps uh, that allowed uh, consumers to volunteer information or for, for a way for them to track. And you can see the uptake has been very varied, right, depending on the, the government's uh, sort of trust levels with the, the trust quotient uh, that consumers had with them. I think what's interesting, Temur, is the mix of what the private sector has also done. Uh, and it's the combination of the private sector, the social sector, and the government. And you see in certain markets um, where you see consumers actually playing the role of governments using consumer activism, you know, making sure the neighborhood store is alive, you know, some of these other things where in other markets, the government has proactively taken a stance, provided subsidies, and so on, right? Um, also trust in government in terms of health and their ability to provide the infrastructure. You see very varied actions in terms of, uh, you know, quarantining at home versus relying on government infrastructure, uh, as well as medical subsidies to be able to see people through. Correct, correct. Um, and uh, we've also seen in Asia, I mean, not just China, but even like Taiwan and Korea, the contact tracing uh, apps being adopted widely. Not that, you know, they have had a slam dunk. In the case of Korea, we have seen a resurgence in infection, but I still think that the trust level remains pretty high and the use of technology to track uh, possible uh, transmission of the infection uh, remains pretty um, uh, successful. And therefore, I think uh, we still have fairly high level of confidence that the Koreans will be able to take care of the uh, recent resurgence uh, pretty well. But think about a country like Brazil, where the government itself has expressed a great deal of skepticism about uh, COVID-19, uh, trust levels have been low in, in any case, and any sort of government initiative has also met with a lot of resistance. All right, 
that's the government. Now, your client universe, which is the companies of the world, uh, how are they standing up? And of course, this is a very broad question. So I think you're going to help us navigate sectors by sector or even across geographies, uh, how they're being perceived and how they're meeting these challenges. Okay, so let me kind of take you back to trend and then some of the responses, because that might be a helpful way to see why the response, right, from organizations. Sure. So uh, the first one I'll call out is really health, right? The consumer obsession with health and safeguarding immunity has led to many um, sort of spaces, you know, everything from boost my immunity, quantifying, uh, quantified me, you know, which is quantifying my physical and mental well-being. Um, integrated virtual care or self-care, Temur, is a big uh, rise. So telehealth, uh, we're seeing a lot more comfort by consumers in actually um, engaging with telehealth. Um, and this whole focus on health has meant organizations, regardless of what sector they operate in, so if you're a consumer goods company, you're a bank, you're a platform player like Grab, or you're somebody else, every business is a health business. And you might kind of take a leap into reimagining your product portfolio. So we have a number of organizations we're working with in food and beverages all the way through to actually uh, home, home care, where we are proactively thinking about where, where is the health element and not just as a communication device, but uh, really reimagining uh, health at the heart of, right? So that's the first. You will see a range of different banks. Sorry. Uh, just mm -hmm. on the health side, I want to go a little deeper. Uh, so what exactly is telehealth? I mean, if you want your teeth to be examined, you still have to go to the doctor. If you want to have uh, a proper physical examination, you still have to do it physically. So other than picking up the phone and having some chit-chat with the doctor, what else is happening in the world of telehealth? So a few different things, Temur. I think people have been, you know, they've been, um, what should I say, experimenting uh, with a range of telehealth uh, apps, right? So we've always had a number of startups in the space. Uh, in the US, the Veterans Administration, which looks after all of the Army veterans, um, has also got a model in place. Pre-COVID versus post-COVID, there is an, a real rise and acceleration of a couple of things. The first is uh, with lockdown and particularly vulnerable aging segments of the population, you didn't want them out in a hospital, yes. right? It was much easier for you to do a teleconsultation with a doctor uh, for a few different things. So if you have a chronic condition, you know, you're diabetic, you're hypertensive, etc., and you've developed, uh, you know, a, a new uh, sort of health episode, you wanted to do the consultation at home uh, with your caregiver to make sure versus taking your aged parent in to a hospital environment where they could contract something else, right? So the first was a real acceleration. I think the second thing we've seen is actually uh, governments revisiting policy on telehealth. In the past, your medical reimbursements uh, were not, um, you know, you could not actually reimburse telehealth because it was not viewed as the same. And like I said, even consumers felt that somehow a telehealth consultation was not the same as a an in-person visit. Uh, but what we're finding is actually a lot more comfort on the consumer side. We're seeing that, you know, that on the technology side, there were already a number of things that were already well in place. It was more the demand hurdle as well as the reimbursement hurdle. And as both have kind of settled in and it's not just that episode of you 
you know, just doing the one-on-one consultation. What we're seeing as really the future uh, model here is really an integrated model of what we're calling virtual care, which includes both the combination of the physical and the virtual and multimodal communication, right? Especially for chronic conditions, right? It allows you to proactively communicate your readings uh, with the doctor in a digital fashion, exception alerts that allow you to then trigger a a virtual sort of telehealth call uh, versus then using the physical uh, engagement with the doctor in a very thoughtful, considered way versus that being the default. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Okay. Got it. Okay. Okay, so we spoke about health at the heart of everything and, you know, what we're seeing organizations do. Uh, We've spoken a little bit about the home and what people are doing. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, I've had a number of conversations with investment managers, fund managers, and a few interesting observations that I'd like to play back. So as they imagine their real estate portfolio and the companies they've invested in, commercial buildings, but also residential, uh, and you look at the World Designer Guild and what architects are also calling out in terms of buildings of the future, there are some very real conversations that people are having around how much commercial real estate space do you really need if companies are also going to operate in this hybrid model of uh, people working from home versus at uh, in a physical space in the office, right? So does that mean shrinking of uh, commercial real estate as we know it? The second thing is really the operational aspects of when you're in a building. And if you had to reimagine how that happens today, what would change? So if you look at Seacon Square Mall in Bangkok, um, and as we've seen in a couple of other places, this whole contactless, touchless uh, experience, right? So you have foot pedals that operate elevators, uh, you know, trying to minimize any shared surfaces. Uh, You've seen the use of UV sanitizing robots in Jones the Grocer, Uh, in the US. So, you know, really reimagining even how consumers will navigate these spaces, both in commercial buildings as well as um, residential. This is fascinating, but are you, is it too early to call this a trend? Uh, I mean, you know, after the SARS crisis, we didn't see massive changes in trend as far as commercial real estate was concerned, but perhaps this is a more contagious disease and we're going to be more uh, reserved about contacts going forward, and also it's a global phenomenon as opposed to SARS, which was just in Asia, largely speaking. Um, but uh, you think that already the changes are profound and are in motion? So, Temur, I think early days, as you rightly said, um, I I was in Hong Kong when SARS happened, and I remember for uh, almost six, eight months after that, masks were everywhere. Right. I, I didn't think masks didn't go away for a long time after SARS in Hong Kong. But admittedly, as you rightly said, you know, this is a global phenomenon. It is early days. But I think if I think about the conversations we're having with real estate companies as well, they are mulling over what needs to change. Right. As they work in this hybrid model. And I'll tell you some of the conversations we're having on the other side. Right. So if I look at retailers, uh, we were talking to a large retailer in Asia and, you know, playing out scenarios uh, Uh, you know, both advancing and stabilizing models of what would happen and what it meant for demand as well as their physical real estate space. And they operate across lifestyle, grocery, and so on. And in the first instance, if they had 100 stores, they were going to immediately shrink that to 50 to start with and uh, re-sort of allocate investment into digitizing in an accelerated fashion their omni-channel commerce model. 
reimagining their e-distribution and we're talking about speed to market at a level that they hadn't done before right so all investment resources people and capability that we were helping with is really for them to help operate with a 50% physical footprint for the next 6 to 12 months and as we hit closer to the 12 month mark going back only up to 70% but this is one retailer but remembering they have a footprint ac- across lifestyle grocery and fashion right but uh, sonia the way i think about the um, uh, sort of the gig economy the way it was evolving before the pandemic that you know we were getting used to sharing lots of things uh, uber and ride sharing or airbnb and you know living in somebody's apartment or we works and you know working in shared spaces are these things going to go away or these companies are intrepid enough and they're already rethinking and reimagining uh, all the assets that they have and how to deploy them in this post pandemic world so a few mixed things then but i'll call them out one by one uh, you know the auto sector in china as you know has always been heralded as very large uh, and was growing massively till the sharing economy came through and we saw some dampening of uh, sales but on the back of covid uh, for a few months we started to see you know automotive uh, sales slowly in pockets uh, because of the reservations uh, you know of covid and sharing public spaces but like you said you know china has been ahead of the curve they've tried a number of different things and auto sales still have somewhat of a, a muted uh, response right even the latest reports seem to suggest that at the moment if you think about the transport company operators i think they are trying quite hard uh to make sure their spaces are safe i think what would be interesting is to see uh the you know the carpool models uh not enough comfort we had a couple of calls but again this is across 20 you know 23 markets like i said so not enough to kind of make a very definitive statement uh but i think public spaces uh as a whole muted response for the next 6 months right uh, that's what we're hearing from most consumers i sometimes wonder you know on the office space issue uh, everybody's saying that uh, companies will reduce their footprint in commercial real estate space but would it be 50% or 25% or even less so especially since as we discussed earlier people do come to work want to come to work time to time there is value about that and also the previous um work arrangements of hot desking and open plan will have to be revised and there will be many more uh socially distant spaces which will of course force the companies to increase their footprint so net net is it clear or is it again early days to figure out that there's going to be a big exodus or bigger big shrink down of office real estate company by company yeah i think that what it is early days and i think the more important thing is to watch the experiments exactly like you said right everyone's experimenting with a different model and it has a lot to do with i think a lot of the clients we're talking to is there's a lot of uh, conversation around we're missing the creativity that comes from just having our employees uh in a shared space right the the water cooler conversations that lead to better collaboration and so on so i think as you rightly said you know uh, the net effect of trying to do socially distance models versus hot desking versus a few days a week right as you start to model the different uh, options uh, we're going to have to really watch and it's so market specific as well then right right i was absolutely i was quite taken aback when i heard that there were all these silicon valley companies who have told their staff they don't have to come back till yes. 2021 whereas in the past 
Silicon Valley was supposed to be a place where, you know, lots of smart, like-minded people met each other at coffee shops and went for walks and picked up each other's synergies. Um, but how will that be accomplished if nobody's coming to work till the summer of 2021? So I, we may have moved a bit too hastily on, on some of these uh, measures and there might be some rethinking required. Um, Sonia, the uh, other issue with respect to companies is, you know, I, I began the discussion by saying that, you know, there are divergent outcomes. So if you're in the e-commerce, cloud computing, uh, online delivery space, things are great. If you're in travel and tourism on a big box retail, it's been a tough slog. Um, what's your sense? I mean, will this divergence continue? Uh, are you seeing some companies being very clever and others are not catching up on the trend? And would that then lead to some serious consolidation going forward? Yeah, so Tamara, thanks for raising this because we didn't talk enough really about e-commerce, right? Lots of bombastic headlines and actually a lot of truth as you look at the data, which is we've seen more progress in 10 weeks of uh, just the acceleration and adoption of e-commerce versus, you know, 10 years, uh, the 10 years that preceded. But let me just kind of, uh, again, you know, draw out some of the detail, right? So a few nuances in terms of the consumer purchase side and then specifically, you know, the companies that are benefiting and what are they doing and getting right. So the first is I do want to spend some time on the consumer side. So people are shopping fewer but bigger baskets. If I forget something, I'm not trying necessarily to go make it up in the physical store. I'm choosing to live without. So your ability to catch my attention when I'm online, proactively understand me, analytics, personalize the experience, uh, trying to automate my basket, all of these things are really going to be very, very big differentiators in the future, right? And I am always wary of talking to an economist and telling him that this time it's different. But I will say that I do think some things are different this time. And please don't hold me. I know this is going to be out there and then I'll have to live with the statement forever. But there are four things that are different this time with e-commerce. The first is demand has shifted out of necessity. And I'll, I'll contrast this with a study we done seven years ago on fresh food and the potential of fresh food online. And there were many conditions for fresh food to be online because consumers wanted to touch and feel. So if I was using apple in a salad versus I was using it in a crumble, I knew what I was shopping for. So fresh foods were very difficult for someone else to pick and pack for me, right? Um, but fresh foods have gone online partly out of necessity. So the demand side, and I'm, I just called out fresh food as an example, but you know, from food to alcohol, to prescription, to personal care, home decor, DIY, apparel, you name it, right? Everything has seen an accelerated uptake online. So on the demand side, that's very clear. On the supply side, you know, organizations through a bit of experimentation, having got it wrong sometimes with broken promises, but have really bolstered and because of technological uh, progress, we are able to actually stand up platforms, capabilities, payment mechanisms today far better. So the supply side is also there. I think the third thing is really governments and the digitization agenda. And it, like I said, the 23 markets we studied, all of them had some form of it, but really helping the small guy and allowing them to compete through policy, subsidies, you know, creating shared service models that allow them to go online and the save the neighborhood store uh, type models have allowed this shift to e-commerce to be real. And the last one is payments, right? Payment mechanisms have overnight digitized and, you know, we have brought to on board uh, an entire segment of the population that wouldn't be otherwise. So this e-commerce thing is here and real. And as you rightly said, I think logistics companies that have 
been able to create a, a network and e an ecosystem to plug into all kinds of categories have benefited. I think the marketplaces that have been quick to cross-sell, upsell across baskets and personalize using analytics have uh, benefited um, quite dramatically, actually. This is an absolutely uh, critical matter for us dealing with this pandemic, Sonia. I mean, as we know, there has been this big digital divide between rich countries and poor countries, and even within each country, from those who are well off and have access to internet services and those who do not. And if you have to provide subsidies to people, if you have to provide information to people, uh, using the digital channel seems to be the default. Uh, and 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 how those who don't have connectivity, who don't have the resources, how they become included in these initiatives is a very critical issue. And you know, when, when I say these things, I mean, I'm not just talking about um, developing countries in Asia versus the West. Even in America, there are many Absolutely. people with very poor connectivity and, uh, and, and, and are feel sort of left out by the, the march of the digital economy, uh, which is one of the reasons, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, as well as the various support mechanisms the Fed came up with. One big question was, you know, how will it be administered equitably across the society? Because when you look at the minorities, when you look at the poor, uh, for them to access those things are harder. So I read somewhere that some of the big tech companies like Google have proactively gone ahead and started placing large deposits. You know, like $10 million is nothing for Google, but for a community bank, it's massive. And once Google places the $10 million in that bank, that bank's ability to generate credit uh, opportunities and loans for those downtrodden people changes dramatically. Uh, and, and so it sort of began as sort of a public sector initiative, and now we're seeing companies helping each other out, uh, which is uh, also remarkable. Um, sorry, go ahead. Sure, Tamar. And just on that, actually, actually, it's a really important point. As we go through this, the digital divide is real. And like you said, this is not a developing, developed country issue, uh, not in the traditional way we've looked at it. We've been doing some work with the WEF. And as you know, half of the world's population has no access to the Internet. You're right. The digital divide is real. And a lot of the conversations we're having uh, with clients is really about how do you bring along this analog consumer as well. Uh, the one other aspect that we didn't talk enough about, Temur, was, you know, it's not just consumption, it's also access to services. So if you think about what COVID did, and suddenly we were doing schools online, you know, working from home, uh, there were a lot of uh, calls that we needed to make to either troubleshoot, you know, uh, digital devices or others. And a lot of the customer hotlines, you could no longer drop in, right? You had to use a digital self-serve mechanism to even solve that. Right. And that led to uh, organizations actually recognizing the huge gap they have to be able to serve customers well. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's not that straightforward, uh, regardless of the market or the country that you're in. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we are paid to think about these issues, uh, but uh, clearly we have not solved these issues. So why don't you help us um, become a bit humble by telling us uh, the big open question, uh, answering which will, of course, you know, make or break our uh, crisis recovery. So what are the things that you are um, worried about or feel that you know, the corporate sector, the consumers have not fully come to terms with yet? Oof, very big question, Temur. <laughs> but maybe I'll start with, you know, the very first topic that we kind of explored. I think uh, purpose and, you know, your purpose and trust is really the cornerstone of any business. I think being very thoughtful about who you are, what you stand for, 
Uh, and in everything that you do, you know, how you interact with your customers, I think being very clear as leadership teams, but also in your execution about how you are engendering trust, fostering trust, both with the community and the consumer, but also using your role as an industry actor, working with the government to actually you know, further the development of the communities you, you are in, right? Doing good is good business and how you're doing that proactively. I think that's the first, being quite thoughtful about that. I think the second is no matter whether you're a bank or a logistics player or a telecom company, being quite thoughtful about this new consumer and the lasting behaviors and thinking quite carefully about what are the new opportunities it presents and what are some you know, assumptions we're making about our business that actually require us to take pause and challenge them. It's not easy to do because your, you know, business model, your operating model, your people have all been designed to operate in a world that looked quite different. So as you think about this new consumer and you think about the opportunities and challenges it presents, how are you creating an organization that can adapt and reinvent uh, you know, with all of the uncertainty ahead of us, right? So thinking it through in a very data-driven way, because even, Temur, as you ask some of these questions, right? Do we know with certainty? Is it going to be X? Is it going to be Y? Many of these questions are unknown and, and they're changing so quickly that you need an organization that allows you to respond uh, in the same sort of speed, uh, if you will. Absolutely. And also, I think this is a big test for both the humanity of a company's management as well as the um, sense of uh, purpose, as you correctly said, um, because at, at times when it's tough and there's a lot of uncertainty and unanswerable questions ahead, I think the easy thing to do is hunker down and consolidate and get rid of lots of people and, and protect your balance sheet. Um, whereas I think historically we have seen that companies who turn very conservative during bad times are the ones that are slow to get off the uh, base, if you will, when the recovery comes, whereas the ones who have remained brave and loyal to their staff and have shown that they have a vision for the role of the company in the community that they live in, uh, they tend to be far more uh, successful down the road in the long term. So one hope is that this crisis uh, will reduce some of the short-termism that have become embedded in a lot of corporate behavior and focus us to, you know, or force us to look at the bigger picture. Uh, Sonia, a great chat. Uh, I've learned a lot from you. Thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you for your time, Temo. This has been a great discussion. You give me a lot of food for thought too. So it's our thank pleasure. you. And thanks also to our listeners. Uh, Kobe Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 26 episodes of Kobe Time are now available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day. <laughs>